0: Good morning. You know, From time to time, high school and or college students ask to interview a priest here at Our Lady of Mount Carmel for a paper or a project. I'm happy to do so, though I do admit being a little bit frustrated at times when a student asks me, what does the catechism say about this or that topic? I say, I'm not your research assistant. Go read it, right? Painfully, I tell them, here's an idea. Again, read the catechism. Well, but a while ago, one student surprised the heck out of me, hoping for the best, but cynically prepared for the worst. We sat at the table at my office, and he started by asking, Father, in your opinion, what is the greatest sin of our time? What is the greatest sin of our time? I remember that I was slouching a bit, and I straightened up quickly. This kid was serious. After a moment, I told him that it was probably the sin of entitlement and presumption, because they change us, and not in good ways, but in bad. For example, I remember friends of mine took their children to a major theme park that had a system whereby, paying a little extra, they could skip most of the long lines. When the passes didn't apply to a particular venue, their children actually grumbled and complained that they had to wait behind the poor people. My friend's were absolutely stunned and I was impressed when they pivoted and told their children but the rest of the day they would be waiting in lines to teach them a lesson or another young person who was convinced and told me that her parents owed her all the opportunities of life not only an expensive college education but a semester abroad and four spring breaks I have a rather wealthy friend whose son asked for his inheritance early as it made sense to him to buy a house and not to have to suffer the indignities of an apartment and a roommate. And finally, I once assisted at a retreat where the menu included mostly fast food, and one of the spoiled teenagers at the retreat asked on his way home if we could stop at a restaurant where we could sit down and have people wait on us. I told him we could absolutely do that as soon as hell froze over. Were any of these sinful entitlements the greatest sin? Well, of course not. But to me, they are the sin- sins like the canary in the coal mine. If you've never heard of that, it was the practice of taking a canary into mines because they would be affected by emissions more immediately and die, alerting miners that there was too much deadly carbon monoxide. So entitlement of finite things like spring break and shiny new cars is like the canary in the mine, at least to me. In time, the entitlement mentality convinces people of all sorts of things that they are entitled to, including infinite things like heaven and eternal life. I often think about the about this during funeral preparation when it's communicated to me that the deceased did little else than sit on the couch and watch westerns and then go play some golf. Yet it never dawns on the survivors that Billy Bob's new address is anywhere else besides inside the pearly gates of heaven. Is he really? Is that all that it takes? Do we have any responsibilities outside of our own comfort? What do we owe God? What do we owe his poor? What part of the kingdom have we built in obedience to the gospel mandates? Entitlement often leads to a rarely confessed sin called the sin of presumption. Presumption is a vice directly opposed to the theological virtue of hope. It's an unwarranted expectation that eternal life will be granted regardless of one's personal response to God's love and his grace. So sin, what makes a difference? That is, it is somehow owed to us to have forgiveness. Who needs hope when we're convinced it's unnecessary because eternal life is automatic? Sinful, or forgiveness is automatic. That's what John the Baptist found in the desert as he prophesied about the kingdom of God. The Sadducees and the Pharisees and many of the people he spoke to thought they were entitled to the kingdom, and it sickened him. After all, they were Jewish, just like, after all, we're Catholic. Eternity with God wasn't something to hope for. It was seen as a perk of being in the club, if you will. And this mentality didn't go over with John, to say the least. He called them a brood of vipers. They thought they had the right to salvation simply because, as the scriptures say, they were sons of Abraham. God can raise up sons of Abraham from these stones, the Baptist yelled. Stop making presumptions, in other words. The Baptist warns them, and then he also warns us. The message for the second Sunday of Advent is to prepare, or more precisely, don't presume, but prepare. We've been brought into the sacred life through the merciful gift of God that is our baptism. And when we refuse to live out our faith, as John uh, reminded the people, we're treating our baptism as a presumptuous ritual. Some of our Protestant brothers and sisters will speak about the necessity of confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But that is also insufficient if we do not live this belief we're entitled to nothing other than the fruits of the life that we live as christians a great example during the advent christmas season is george frederick handel he understood this he lived during the uh, the first half of the 18th century and even if we have little knowledge of classical music we're aware of his greatest work the messiah christmas time brings innumerable performances of this masterpiece And it's uh, rousing the Alleluia Chorus. It's being performed at the Palladium again this year. It's so popular that weeks in advance, I checked, there was only one seat available. And so if you want that, uh, that ticket, go get it now. But did you know that Handel never received a penny for this, his greatest work? Whatever money the work made in his lifetime was sent to the London Foundling Hospital for Poor Orphans. It wasn't that Handel was a rich man at that time either. In fact, he'd gone bankrupt. To make matters worse, he had suffered a paralyzing stroke. Handel had been rich and famous. There was a day when he was the most sought-after composer in all of Europe. But 25 years later, his operas had lost their appeal. He'd become stale in his 50s, and he was deeply in debt. A few years years later, in 1742, Handel was asked to write a work based on the meditations of the life of Christ in order to help these poor children. And he felt inspired by God, and he completed the work in less than 24 days. Handel refused any commissions for the performance because he said this was God's work, not his. And he received the gift of music from the Lord and was paying him back, by giving him the gift of loving God through music to the Lord's people, most especially poor children. The Messiah was and still is acclaimed, but surprisingly to modern listeners, you might be surprised that London clergy vehemently opposed it, saying it was too modern. Some called it sacrificial or sacrilegious blasphemy, And the Anglican Church influenced what would be performed in the concert halls of London, so the Messiah simply wasn't performed there. Still, it made no difference to Handel. He gave the piece to the London Foundling Hospital for their fundraising, and every year for the subsequent 20 years, he directed it at sites determined by the hospital. And he did this all for free. Handel didn't feel entitled to anything other than which the, that which, which the Lord gives to his faithful servants. And he didn't presume, he didn't feel entitled, he prepared for the coming of the Lord. Entitlement is the way of selfishness. Sacrifice is the way of the Lord and the work of every Christian. To prepare the way of the Lord, the Baptist enjoins us, by living the faith that we have received that we are called to live in such a way that others will welcome the Lord into their lives. Stay awake was what we heard last week, and this week we, we hear prepare to serve the Lord, and when we do so, we will also find him.